You're listening to the Co-Main Event Podcast. And now your hosts, Ben Folks and Chad Dunn. That's right. You're tuned in to another episode of the Co-Main Event Mixed Martial Arts Podcast. I'm your co-host from ESPN.com, Chad Dundas, and joining us as always from USA Today and MMAJunkie.com, it's your friend and mine, Ben Folks. Ben, this past week you've been on your own. Your wife has been oh, yeah. visiting her parents uh, on the East Coast somewhere. That's right. Uh, An undisclosed location on the East Coast. What have you been up to? What have you done? Uh, how have you spent your time? Uh, nothing. That's what I've been up to, basically. Uh, and it's been wonderful. It's been absolutely wonderful. How many times did you just get blackout drunk? Um, the, the honest answer? Or yes. can I make one up? No, what's the honest answer? Zero. God damn it. What did you do? You just sat around the house watching Joe no, Dirt? I, I got like brown out drunk. Okay, well, that's... Uh, but I remember it all. I remember every last sad detail of it. That's too bad. Yeah. That's too bad. Well, Ben, it's it's a big week for the Co-Main Event Podcast because last week the first ever CME theme music contest wrapped up. We have five finalists that we've chosen. Those will be on the website on Tuesday, uh, and the, the listeners of the show can uh, can get on the comainevent.com and vote for their favorite, and then that, that will in some way chart the, the course into the future for this podcast. Yeah. Uh, you know, and... I want to say I appreciate the diversity of music selections we got. Yeah, we got a lot of uh, surprisingly uh, offbeat and uh, almost all of them very, very good, I thought. Uh, Although, who was it who sent us basically like like a three-minute indie rock song about their girlfriend or whatever? That was obviously just some song that their band did that they thought they could just pass off as a CME song. We had several rock and roll outfits submit songs that were clearly previously recorded songs that they wanted to submit uh, to the to the contest. And I appreciate that. I appreciate having those songs at our disposal. I don't. But truth be told, we did weight the, at least the preliminary selection toward people who clearly did work, yeah. or it may, at least made it seem like they did work for the, the contest itself. Well, hey, I mean, if you put together a rap about the CME, even if it's a, a lower quality than this band's song about their girlfriend, I still, that, that moves to the front of the line for me. A lot of people actually did write songs with lyrics about the podcast, which I thought was great. And, yeah. uh, you know, some of those got chosen for the final. And uh, those that didn't, I think next week we'll do some kind of master mix at the end of the, at the, end of the show to at least highlight some of the more interesting uh, submissions that we got. Well, maybe now if we have a rap that tells people enough about what the CME is, is doing, then maybe some of these damn publicists can just listen to the very beginning of the show and figure out that it's not worth trying to pitch us an interview with their guy. Yeah, no, they won't do that. They'll no, just keep they sending us those emails about what Ronda Rousey's up to this week. <laughs> uh, the music that uh, we'll be using between rounds this week, Ben, comes from listener Dimitri Kalmar and his band Driven Mad. And if you like their stuff, you can find more of their music at drivenmadmetal.com, if that provides a hint as to what they sound like. Uh, barbershop Quartet? Yes, they are a, an acapella group. I've been waiting for one of those. Bobby McFerrin yeah. uh, influenced, uh -huh. I think, pretty obviously. Anyway, on to the particulars. As usual, this week's Co-Main Event Podcast comes to you in three rounds. In round number one, this weekend on Fox, Demetrius Johnson defends the flyweight title against a guy who's never fought on a UFC main card before. So, 
Yeah. Yeah. And in round number two, and what might turn out to be the actual main event of the show, Jake Ellenberger and Rory McDonald will try to scramble each other's brains as they jockey for position behind Johnny Hendricks. And in round number three, it was a weird week outside the cage as Anderson Silva cried on Brazilian TV and Dana White went full Dana White on SI.com's crappy ass web show. Anderson is here for cry. <laughs> We'll have all of that, plus Are You Fucking Kidding Me, Master Tweet Theater, and just saying stuff. But right now, like we always do about this time, let's do some listener mail. Listener mail. First piece of listener mail this week comes to us from Mark C. He writes, Dana White's reaction to some media reports about Michael Falcao being linked to the to the UFC following Falcao and associate being attacked in Brazil leave me confused. Turns out the... uh the fight may have been begun when Falcao shoved a woman. This this uh, this email references a video of yeah. former UFC fighter. A video that I assume every CME listener has seen yeah, by they, now. Uh, Falcao he gets in a in a brawl in a, at a gas station in yeah, Brazil. He's kind of acting like an asshole to some woman in the gas station, and she doesn't appreciate it. And he acts like even more of an asshole and like takes a swipe at her, and then she goes and gets some some male friends who do not appreciate his behavior one bit and end up putting a gut-wrenching beating on Falcao and his buddy. Yeah, somebody gets, kind of terrible to somebody watch. gets hit with a two-by-four, I think. Yeah, and then just kicked a whole bunch while he's unconscious. It's really unpleasant to see. Anyway, back to the mail. Uh, White wanted to make sure everyone understood that Falcao was cut by the UFC due to an arrest for hitting a woman and was actually under contract with Bellator, not the UFC, at the time of the most recent incident. Dana went on to say the UFC does not and will not tolerate situations like this. Sexual assault, hitting a woman, or anything like that, you're gone from the roster. It doesn't matter if you're a winner or a champion or anything like that, you're gone. Keep Keep your hands off women. I think that's a fantastic approach. I also just want to say, are you fucking kidding me? Am I the only person who happened to notice convicted rapist Mike Tyson, convicted rapist in all caps, by the way, here, uh, being paraded about the Fan Expo and UFC 162 broadcast? I know Iron Mike doesn't fight for the UFC, but he was certainly part of the weekend and seems to be fully embraced by the company. Mixed signals? I guess a cameo in the Hangover movies is all you need to get folks to forget that you raped a teenager. Ouch. Yeah. There at the end. Just yeah. like a little hammer. Turning the knife there. You know, I agree, though. I, I, we actually talked about this a couple weeks ago before we even got this, this piece of listener mail that it does seem strange the way, and I think probably informs the UFC's uh, general uh, worldview in some way that Mike Tyson is not only shown to be a big fan of the UFC, uh, frequently, but also, as uh, Mark pointed out, just thoroughly and unabashedly embraced by both the company itself and most of the fighters. Yeah. We've had we've now had several incidents where Tyson has showed up in some uh, you know semi official capacity. I guess just as a uh, as an observer, like you know they had him on the Ultimate Fighter a couple times to give pep talks and whatnot. He's showed up at weigh-ins. He's he's ringside sometimes at at, at fights, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And it does always seem weird to me that that people in this industry seem to like fawn over Mike Tyson without ever even a a sideways nod to his uh checkered past. Yeah, which includes a rape conviction, biting a piece of Vander Holyfield's ear off, uh beating up ex-wife Robin Givens, a lot of stuff like that. But okay, two things here about this question. One in a general sense I thought it was going to go in the direction of you know Dana White saying this, hey, if you do anything, sexual assault, hitting a woman, anything, I don't care who you are, you're gone. 
I don't think we believe that for a second. If it was somebody big enough and profitable enough, uh, and they're accused of, you know, hitting a woman or, you know, some kind of sexual assault, I think that the UFC would take it a lot slower. If you're some undercard guy, yeah, sure, then they can cut you and, and make a stand on it. But I don't know if they, if Dana White really wants to take that stand of like, this is, we're going to have the same response on everybody because the UFC never has the same response. Uh, for the same offense, depending on like who actually does it. The second thing about Mike Tyson in, in particular, I kind of go back and forth on that one because, yeah, you're right. I feel like, and I don't feel like it's just the UFC or UFC fans or anything. In general, it seems like the, the culture has kind of embraced this like redemption act of Mike Tyson. And, and it seems genuine. You know, he's got like that one man show that he's doing. Uh, and it seems like we kind of got on board with that. That we want the, you know, Mike Tyson recovery and redemption story. Uh, and yeah, okay, we'll kind of forget about the other stuff. And I agree that it does seem weird, but at the same time also, you get convicted of rape, you go to jail, you serve your time, you come out. I mean, do we have, like, what do we want the UFC to do there? Either not show Mike Tyson if he's at a UFC event or make sure to mention that he has a rape conviction every time they show him. I mean, how long do you just want, like, to keep beating the guy over the head with that, you know? Yeah, I hear what you're saying. At the same time, though, in another sport, I'm not sure that you would see a convicted rapist so closely linked with the uh, with the the guys who run the company. No, you like just if, see dudes if, who managed to get away with rape right. because they're NFL football <laughs> players and they'd still be playing. But it'd be like if like Dick Butkus had been convicted of rape and then he showed up like palling around with the with the owner of the Bears or something at a at a football game. Yeah. It seems weird. It seems like something that wouldn't happen. It does seem weird. Anyway, the second piece of listener mail this week comes to us from Kyle Kelly Yoner. He writes, Tito Ortiz and Mayhem Miller both cryptically hinted at comebacks. Should I care? I feel like this, quote, recently retired slash washed up fighter hints comeback story resurfaces every week. I think that it's it's in a fighter's nature to think they could always, quote, do it again, brother. Uh, it's rare that they are actually capable of launching a comeback, whether it's for physical parentheses Tito or psychological reasons. Do we have to pay attention to or care about the comeback narrative? I'm going to say no. No, we are not obliged to at all. We can choose to. Uh, in the case of Tito, I am choosing not to. Uh, I don't. I don't think that's a comeback that's really going to happen. At least I hope it's not. Right. Well, I mean, I don't. I don't know. Well, he he tweeted that picture of himself at the Bellator front office. So it seems like he's at least in discussions with with other companies besides the UFC, you would hope maybe in some other sort of role, right? <laughs> and maybe not as 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 professional fighter. Although, shoot, man, you throw Tito into that Bell Bellator mix, maybe he makes noise. You know what I mean? And we already know what a great commentator he is. That's we right. saw affliction. That's right. Uh, this strikes me as the kind of thing where, like, if you are a guy who has – any sort of profile on the national MMA scene and you have previously called it quits uh, in a more substantive way than we see in the, in the classic in the cage after a loss. I don't think I'm going to do this anymore. Two weeks later, you sign a, a bout agreement to fight somebody else. Uh, if you mention that you're going to do a comeback, like people are just going to write a story about it and put it on the website because it's super easy to do. Yeah. And uh, people will probably read it. Especially if you post a picture yourself with your shirt off. On your Twitter, and hey, we can just throw that on there too. Um, but you know, I understand why with with fighters because it's not like you know you don't have to go through all the the hoops of like a team sport where it's like if you want to make a comeback in the NFL, you got to get someone to want to sign you their team, and then you got to make it through summer camp, but you know still be on the roster and all. Like there's a little bit more of like uh, official hurdles to clear with fighting. 
as it's in so many aspects of fighting, whether it's training fighters or actually being a fighter, if you show up and you can get a fight somewhere, you're a fighter. You're back in it. You know, and I can understand why some of those guys, after some time off, start to think, oh, hey, and now I, I suddenly feel better that I'm not getting my head bashed all the time in training and my body is, is healing. Well, yeah, but if you're going to go back to being the life of a fighter, then you're going to go back to being injured all the time probably. I mean, that's one of the things Brian Stan said that he decided it that night after the Vandalay fight but wanted to take a while to think about it because he didn't want to be one of these guys who says it and then six months later is like, well, maybe I could still do it. Maybe we get Tito on the second season of Fight Master as one of those coaches that sits in the in the big easy chairs. It's it's adorable. You think there's going to be a second season of Fight Master? <laughs> That's adorable. Third question this week comes to us from Michael S. He writes, "I happened to glance at the fight odds for Henderson versus Pettis, and I saw they're virtually even, and it got me wondering: Can you guys think of a long-term title holder who's had as weird of a reign as Benson Henderson?" On one hand, you can make the argument that he's gotten no respect as champion. He sent Edgar down to featherweight, he dispatched everyone's strike force hero, Melendez, and he beat the tar out of a Diaz brother. If he defeats Pettis, he basically cleared out the division. Sorry, TJ Grant. Now see that I don't know about that, but no. we'll just maybe we'll address that in a second. On the other hand, a good number of people have scored up to three of his four title fights as losses. The last time he finished someone, Brock Lesnar, was still heavyweight champ. I just can't think of another situation where a champion about to fight in his fifth title fight has been less revered. If he wins, he'll have the most lightweight title defenses of all time, exclamation point. I can't wrap my head around it. Discuss. Now, I think, first of all, it speaks to, uh, to something like the, the transient nature of titles in this sport. If we consider Ben Henderson to be a, what does he call him here? Long time title holder, long term, long, yeah. yeah, Long term title holder. The guy's only been champion for a year and a half, less than that. Uh, but I mean, I guess in the lightweight division where, where they've kind of passed it around a little bit, especially, uh, uh, you know, go, going back to BJ Penn and, and Frankie Edgar and stuff like that. Maybe that, maybe that does make you a long-term champion. I don't know, but we, and we've talked about this on the show before, Perhaps the weirdness of the Ben Henderson reign stems from the fact that aside from the beatdown he put on Nate Diaz, he doesn't really have like a signature performance to hang his hat on as as lightweight champion. It's true. Uh, and so I think that makes him, um, you know, vulnerable to criticism. And also the fact that he seems to have lapped into this lapsed into the same style that that Frankie Edgar fought with, where every single fight that he has is a really, really close decision. And it seems like he could lose any single one of them. Yeah, you know, I, I agree though with the, like the general theme of the question that it is weird. For one thing, to do this at lightweight where that's gotta be, I think, the most talent rich division in the sport in general. Sure. Uh, not just the UFC. And to, for a guy to maintain his title for that amount of time in the lightweight division, that's impressive. And yet, he, when you think about them just, Without looking at specific accomplishments, he does seem to be somehow one of the least impressive UFC champions, I think. Would you agree? Yeah, and I think that that just stems from the fact that, that as mentioned in the in the mail, uh, the the guy may or may not have lost a couple few of those title fights. Like, you know, we've we've talked about it a lot that I actually scored both those Frankie Edgar fights for, for Frankie Edgar and, and uh, the Melendez fight obviously was real, real close. Uh, the Diaz fight was a pretty dominant performance, but he just doesn't seem to be a guy who is who has, number one, really crafted a ton of highlights for himself as champion, and number two, been involved in some fights that some people thought should have gone the other way. So I think when you put those together, uh, it, it kind of adds up to uh, this idea that, that we think that he could get involved in a close decision where he loses the title at any time in the same 
kind of way that Frankie Edgar did to him. And it also just doesn't make him seem very dominant. It makes him seem like he's kind of, uh, you know, winning a photo finish every single time. So, I mean, I just think that, that, uh, that until he can shake that image, that he's going to continue being somewhat less revered than, than other champions. Although, Hey man, if he goes out and has a really dominant performance against Anthony Pettis, I think that would probably be uh, at least a good place to start. Yeah. Well, I mean, just beating Anthony Pettis any way he can would be a great place to start just because that that's the last loss on his record. And one of the, you know, more notable moments in his career, really, if you're looking at the highlights and he ends up on the wrong side of it. So yeah, you got to think he's going to go out there. And, but I also, you know, I talked to Anthony Pettis and Duke Rufus about how do you approach a fight with Ben Benson Henderson when like, how can you go after the guy and really go out there and try and finish him when you know that he has gotten so good at this style of, kind of exploiting that when people do that to, to where he can use it against them um, and slow everything way down. And, uh, you know, they're, one of their basic theories, it seems, which I can't argue with, is that, hey, if your plan is to go out there and have to fight for five rounds every time and have to fight for 25 minutes, that's 25 minutes worth of chances for you to get knocked out. Um, so there's probably something to that. But at the same time, uh, even when you showtime kicked him, you didn't knock him out. So that, that guy's not going to go down easily. Yeah, and again, I don't know if I can totally get on board with the idea that Ben Henderson has somehow cleaned out the lightweight division. It's no. it's it's the most cutthroat division out there. I think you're always going to have uh, new contenders cropping up, and and then you know old war horses of the past, so to speak. Just like a guy like Gray Maynard, who was on the verge of another title shot against Ben Henderson before uh, getting knocked out by T.J. Grant in his last fight. Like a guy like that is is probably perennially going to be hanging around. Not to mention T.J. Grant, who still, as far as we all know. Uh, uh, deserves a lightweight title shot and just sort of got yeah. shuffled out of this one during so the. I imagine is right now sitting in a dark room with his gi on, just trying not to throw up. Well, yeah, he probably can't look into any bright lights right no. now because oh, of the no. devastating BJJ concussion. Yeah, uh, th- that he suffered. Plus, you've got dudes like Pat Healy and uh, the the fight that they announced this week against Nermi. Uh, those guys are 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 on the come up. Uh, so, I mean, I don't think you're ever really going to have a. a a big time shortage of of contenders at lightweight. So and Josh Thompson, my God, Josh Thompson. That's right. He's just calling out everybody, mm-hmm. trying to put the put the mistakes of the past behind him and and talk his way into a fight against T.J. Grant. I saw this afternoon and talk his way into a constitutional ban on gay marriage, probably. Anyway, that's going to do it for uh, listener mail this week. If you have a question, a comment, a concern that you'd like to air to the to the podcast in the future, you assholes know how to get in touch with us. Go to the website, comainevent.com. Click the link in the top right-hand corner of the page that says email the podcast, and that will get you in touch with us. As for right now, we are going to go ahead and segue into round number one. Well, Ben, it's not as though John Moraga doesn't deserve to fight for the UFC flyweight title. I mean, once you reconcile the fact that Demetrius Johnson has already defeated guys like uh, Joseph Benavidez, Ian McCall, and John Dodson, I think it's pretty defensible to think that Moraga should be next. However, I think that a couple of facts 
here underscore the problem with the way that the flyweight division continues to be promoted in the UFC. First, that Moraga only has two fights in the octagon, which makes the division seem just as shallow as ever to think that he just kind of rolls in and gets a title fight. It's basically a round robin right now. That's right. And second, that neither of those fights were part of a UFC main card broadcast. I believe he fought Ulysses Gomez on Fuel and then fought uh, Chris Carriasso on, on Facebook. So I guess my opening question to you is, how are people even supposed to get into the flyweights if they're not even really letting us see these guys until they're fighting for the title? Again, I think we talked about this before, but it feels like this kind of circular problem that it's tough to say what you're going to have to do to fix it because it's like, okay, the flyweights are still pretty new. They're still building that division. There's not a whole lot of guys in there. And so as they're building it, I can see how it makes sense to the UFC to stick them on the prelims some. Uh, they're not really gaining a whole lot of traction with fans. And some of that might be that when the flyweights do have awesome fights, like, you know, people complain about Demetrius Johnson not finishing fights. John Rogg has finished both his fights. You just probably didn't see him, you know, unless you're super hardcore and you're, you're watching Facebook. Uh, uh, but I can see how it's tough to know how, what's the first step you have to take. Do you just, shan- just try and jam the, the flyweights down people's throats by throwing them on the main card all the time, even if people aren't into it at the time? Uh, or do you just hope that over time people will get more into it as we see more action there? Yeah, I think that when you have a fight like Moraga Carriasso, uh, which we all knew was a fight between two top 10 flyweights yeah. and a, a fight that even going in seemed like there was the potential to have to produce a number one contender for Demetrius Johnson. At that point, I would think you would want to put it on, on a main guard broadcast and give it, uh, you know, at least some hype so that by the time you did get the number one contender out of that fight, that several months later, you might have a prayer that some people would remember who the guy who won was. Because at this point, like you mentioned, having to be a real hardcore fan to have even seen John Moraga's first two fights in the UFC, even if you did see him, and even if you are a super hardcore fan of the UFC, I would, I would not blame you at all. If you, when you heard that Demetrius Johnson was fighting John Moraga, if you, if you thought who, yeah, because especially now that they, they, that all of the fights on the card are available, you know, with Facebook and, and, and fuel TV and FX and all that stuff, there's just so many of them. Yeah. You watch 12 fights on a Saturday from like Saturday afternoon to Saturday evening. I would, yeah, I wouldn't blame you if you couldn't remember what you saw at 4 PM. Yeah, so it, it's it's hard to 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 really know, you know what what the the thinking behind that promotionally is. I guess to their credit, though, they did have much of this Road to the Octagon show, which debuted this this week. Uh, much of that did focus on Demetrius Johnson and John Moraga, and frankly, I think to its credit, did a pretty stellar job of making John Moraga look just fucking tough as nails. Yeah, just looked like a a complete uh, uh, savage as. I guess the parlance of our sport would dictate uh, us calling pe- people who are really good fighters. Would you go so far as to call him a monster? Not yet. Okay. Not yet. You have to really get a get a roll going before. Uh, all right. Before we call you a monster. You're tough but fair. I like that about you. But, so yeah. you know, one of the things I think it was an interesting point. I'm not sure if I totally agree with it, but uh, I talked to John Moraga to do a story for USA Today on Tuesday. Uh, so you know, go out and look for that while you're eating your your ham and eggs at Denny's. Uh, but one of the things he said was that he felt like Demetrius Johnson is at least partially personally responsible for people not really getting into the flyweights because here he is. He's the champion. He's the guy who is kind of guaranteed to get to fight on the main cards when the flyweights, uh, are around. And yet 
his fighting style, uh, as John Moraga put it, is a lot of bouncing around and uh, <laughs> avoiding the fight. And that, that Moraga thinks he's a he's a port point fighter. He's a boring guy to watch. That he doesn't if he does get into exchange, he just wants to land a couple shots that look good for the judges and then get out of there. That he's not really going after anybody. Uh, and that then that reflects poorly on the division as a whole because you just don't see a whole lot of flyweight fights other that don't feature Demetrius Johnson because of both how small the division is and because the champion is the, the one of the only guys that gets kind of shown in the spotlight there. I go back and forth on whether or not I agree with that. Cause I think some of Demetrius Johnson's fights have been interesting to watch, but I can see some, some validity to that criticism of him. Yeah. And to that point, I feel like Demetrius Johnson even is a little bit, uh, overlooked in terms of like the, the, his fellow champions in the UFC, part of that, uh, uh, road to the octagon special right at the very beginning when they were showing him, uh, uh, you know, working out in, in Seattle and, and, and stuff like that and sparring. They just casually mentioned that he just turned 26. And I thought to myself, holy shit, Demetrius Johnson's only 26. Like I would have thought he was like 31 if you just had me guess. And that made me think like, well, he's yet another one of these young, super talented champions that the UFC has. But because he's not going out there and dominating people like say a uh, John Jones is, it doesn't seem like he's getting a hundred percent of the same kind of credit when, when, uh, you know, he, he's, he's won the flyway title and already defended his belt against John Dodson. And now he has this fight on Fox against John Moraga. It's, it's kind of, uh, puzzling to me that, that they haven't tried to make a bigger deal out of Demetrius Johnson, which I guess again, goes back to the thing we talked about at the beginning of the round where it doesn't seem like they really know what to do with the flyweights exactly yet. In fairness, uh, his body is 26, but his ears are 142. <laughs> That's so that, true. That you have to factor that That's in. That's true. And another kind of weird thing that this Road to the Octagon show did, both about this fight and about the uh, Jake Ellenberger, Rory McDonald fight, which we'll talk about in round number two, but like both of those kind of whatever 10 or 15 minute vignettes that they produced about both of those fights as part of this show. One of the dudes in this case, John Moraga was presented as all he's doing is getting ready to kick this other guy's ass. And he is just tough as shit. He's wearing a ball cap that's 10 sizes too big for him with <laughs> oh, he's a watching his kids, completely he's flat brim. Yeah. But even he's working out while he's got his kids with him that's in true. the show. He's babysitting in a, in a car seat in the gym while Which, he's sparring. By the way, made me kind of feel like a pussy for all the times we've been like, well, I can't watch this baby and transcribe this interview. That's impossible. Exactly. Yeah. And then, so that's what they show about John Moraga, that he's just essentially a trained killer. And then most of the shit about Demetrius Johnson is like him at a baby shower because his wife's <laughs> about to have a baby. And it's just like, obviously, you can't tell what these dudes have actually been doing to prepare for this fight from a from an edited one hour show. But just the way they set it up, you know, when you watch it would not make me feel that comfortable had I put down a big bet on uh, on Demetrius Johnson or for that matter, Rory McDonald, who was the dude they did it to in the in the Jake Ellenberger McDonald part of the show. Yeah, I wondered, you know, some of that might be just like. If the guy seems like not that interesting outside of the gym, then I guess, you know, you spend all your time doing gym footage and stuff. Maybe that could be part of it. Uh, or it could be the other way around, or maybe one of the dudes is a lot, uh, tighter about what he'll let you film inside the gym. Who knows? But I was wondering if you were going to say that just because you would not feel good about Demetrius Johnson's chances since, you know, his wife just had that baby. Now he's going to go and fight. I mean, you and I have been through that a little bit. The lead up to having the baby, kind of a stressful thing. The immediate aftermath of having the baby. I mean, maybe he's really good at compartmentalizing that stuff and can just put it aside and be like, oh, hey, I'm going to hold this baby for a couple hours and then I'm going to go train. Uh, I don't know, man. That seems like it'd be tough to do. 
yeah, I agree. I totally tough to do. Maybe he's staying someplace else for the, uh, for the final lead up to the fight. Oh, um, I'm sure that, uh, that wouldn't be the kind of thing that your wife would hold against you forever. <laughs> but so yeah, the, the end result of this road to the octagon special not only makes it seem like maybe your flyweight champion was a little bit distracted heading into this fight and has this legitimate enormous distraction in his life in the term, in terms of having a, a child right before he's supposed to fight. But he, he also has this fighting style that, that, you know, you talked about a minute ago where he does kind of bounce around a lot and is, is, is like sort of dangerously close to lapsing into Frankie Edgar, uh, Benson Henderson territory where he just kind of ekes out decision after decision over these guys. Well, I would say more like a dominant cruise, except sure. not quite as dominant. Right. In it. Yeah. And so that makes me wonder after watching the show, like, okay, well, we know that, that Demetrius Johnson has this style and, and we're led to believe by this show that John Moraga is just a murderer. And then, we see Demetrius Johnson maybe being distracted heading into the fight. What if John Moraga wins this fight and then you have a flyweight champion that everybody's just like, we have never seen this guy before. We have no idea who this person is. To me, that seems like it presents at least something of a promotional quandary for you if your job is, is selling people fights. I mean, not if the dude does turn out to be the, the stone cold killer uh, that we're led to believe he is. If he goes out there and he finishes Demetrius Johnson, I think that's great. I think then you have like a clear dominant uh, champion. I think that's what people want. I, and I think that that's the kind of thing that would get people excited about the, the flyweight division. I think the, maybe the worst case scenario is that Demetrius Johnson goes out there, bounces around and wins another split decision. Uh, then, you know, you're still facing the same uphill climb with the flyweights as you always were. Well, that probably should do it to wrap up our discussion of Demetrius Johnson versus John Moraga in round number one. Sir Nigel Longstock is here. He's been bragging up and down about how he's got a good crop of tweets for us this week for oh Master boy. Tweet Theater. So he's going to come in here and sit down and, and lead us in, in that game. And that starts right now. Now it's that time again. We welcome back to the show noted theatricalist, Sir Nigel Longstock. Sir Nigel, how are you? Good day to you, sir. I am chomping at the bit. Are you? Chomp, chomp. Bit, well, bit. Take it easy. Uh, for those of you who don't know how this works, Sir Nigel's going to read us off some tweets. Uh, we're going to try and guess who in the MMA sphere would tweet such nonsense. Uh, and laughs will be had by all. Sir Nigel, whenever you're ready. <clears throat> yes, let us begin. There's a theme to of this week. Of course, of course there is. And the theme is personal interests. <laughs> I'm already excited about this. A little glimpse. <clears throat> Tweet the first. Fourth place. Could have been third with a little different draw late in the game, but won a foil scavenging worm. Hooray for this guy. What the fuck? What it? Chad, what is, what's going on here? Doesn't make any sense to me. Don't know what that is. Doesn't make any sense at all. Can you read that again? <clears throat> yes, I can. <clears throat> Fourth place. Could have been third with a little different draw late in the game, but won a foil scavenging worm. Hooray for this guy. Oh, I think I have it. I think I know. Then by all means. I'm going to guess UFC play-by- or uh, PA announcer Bruce Buffer tweeting about poker. Oh, that's a good one. Bruce Buffer does love to tell just really long bullshit poker stories that I don't understand. Uh, 
I'm going to say Ariane Celeste Benjamin Lopez Concepcion. Whoa, really? No reason. No reason for it yeah, at all. I don't know if I follow you there. But... Hmm. Both fine guesses. Both grounded in reason deduction or just giving up and guessing Ariane. Yeah. Both wrong. Ah. It is, in fact, a tweet from Josh Barnett about Magic the Gathering. Oh, goddammit. I Son saw they played a in a Magic the Gathering bitch. tournament. I only know that because I beat up a nerd on the way here and he <laughs> dropped his Magic the Gathering cards. Uh-huh. Sure, sure. Well, I think what we've learned here, though, Chad, is that whether you actually have some kind of rational process to your your thinking or if you just give up and guess Ariani, either way. Yeah. Uh, we got to the same point. I just did it with a lot less effort. And see, I even read some of Josh Barnett's tweets about participating in a Magic the Gathering tournament, I believe, at the San Diego Comic-Con this past week. I just didn't read that one. That's such a Barnett thing to do. Fourth place is not bad. Scavenging worm, though. Not really playable. Hmm. <clears throat> Tweet the second. Did you learn all that by beating up that nerd on the way here? He was a talkative nerd. It's how he drew my attention. Tweet the second. Heading to Nashville, Tennessee. Ready to roll around with some dogs at a canine convention tomorrow. Unleash the beast! Okay. There is also a link, but I assure you it is not helpful at all. <laughs> it is a link that merely goes to the tweeter in question's website. Um, so... Either this person has a skewed idea of what would happen at a, a canine convention, or I do. I don't, do you really get to go wrestle around with the dogs? Is that something that happens? I, I wouldn't know. I would not know what happens at a, at a quote-unquote canine convention. Yeah, different from a dog show, somehow. Yeah. Uh, fuck it, Matt Mitrione. Interesting. Uh, there are numerous fighters that we know to be dog lovers. I think one of them is John Fitch, and that is who I'm going to guess. John Fitch. Okay. Both fine guesses. Both lovers of our fine four-legged friends. Uh, both wrong. Uh, of course. It is Dan the Beast Severin uh, with his biannual uh, tweet. God damn it. Oh, I bet he really Unleash is. the Beast, he yeah, said. Yeah, it's yes. right there in front of us. You know he's just going to roll into a dog show, start wrestling with dogs, and freak a bunch of people the fuck out. That's going to be awesome. What is this? The St. Bernard? Takedown! (laughs) Tweet the third. If you are not a Joe Dirt fan, unfollow me because you have no taste! We're referring to Joe Dirt, the David Spade movie, correct? I presume, although the word fan makes me think there must be some other Joe Dirt. (laughs) So, somebody who not only thinks that that was a good movie, but will judge you... For thinking otherwise. So who has the worst taste in movies out there is what we're we're getting down to here. Uh, Gray Maynard. This is actually UFC president Dana White. You're very confident about that. 100%. Final answer. <laughs> okay. It is! <laughs> it is Dana White. He loves Joe Dirt. Really? For some reason, I assume because he's trying to do some sort of deal with David Spade. I don't know. Yeah, he does have David Spade at the UFC fights a lot. Is there any, are, were there follow-up tweets to explain what in particular he likes about Joe Dirt? No, no, the rest was just about, you know, running the UFC according <laughs> to the same moral code that caused him to respond to Joe Dirt. Well, I don't I don't get it, but there it is. I still think Gray Maynard is probably at least the world's number two Joe Dirt fan. Presumably. <clears throat> Tweet the fourth. Nothing worse than taking a dump at Golds with a cast on. 
<laughs> That's the poet Philip Baroni. I, sure, yes, I, I concur. N- numerous people alerted me to this tweet. <laughs> <laughs> as they did to me. <laughs> it is, in fact, Phil Baroni. And I can say, as a person who broke his right hand, I can say it is a real problem. <laughs> I will take your word for it and hope never to find out. <clears throat> and now, continuing the theme of dumps, tweet the fifth. Wait, wait, so wait, just to go back to the theme, this that last Phil Baroni one... This filed under personal interest. Personal interest. If you follow the poet's Twitter, you will find many dump tweets. Okay, fair and enough. Burritos. The two may be related. <laughs> Tweet the fifth. Why does pooping feel so good sometimes? If I believe even for a second that it felt that good going in, I just might turn gay. Ha ha. Well, we all know this. Yes, we do. Yes, we do. That, that's your boy War Machine. It is. It is War Machine. He loves to poop. He is afraid of turning gay. It's War Machine. <laughs> oh, man. Well, I didn't, when he said that it was going to be a personal interest themed Master Tweet Theater, I didn't yeah. think that two out of the five of them would be pooping. And then another one that's Joe Dirt. So it's basically three out of the five of them <laughs> pooping. Yeah, no, that surprised me as well. And the canine convention, if you think that's going to be poop-free, you're deluding yourself. I feel like there's a little misdirection on this installment, but okay. that That's it for Master Tweet Theater. So, Nigel, what do you got going on? Well, it's funny you should ask, Isn't sir. it? I've just started working on a new project. It's about a 1960s pop group on the verge of making it big until the hottest day of the summer when they are ripped apart by racial violence. Oh, no. Yes. It's called That Thing You Do the Right Thing. <laughs> Wah, wah, wah. Well, that was Master Tweet Theater, and that was Sir Nigel Longstock. Thank you, sir. Well, Chad, also on this weekend's UFC on Fox card in the welterweight division, in a fight that will probably determine a lot about the future of that weight class, we have Rory, the Canadian psycho McDonald, against... Aries. I believe his nickname is Aries. Please. Is it not? Please. Okay. Uh, Taking on Jake, the I clearly don't care anymore what my face looks like, Ellenberger. Juggernaut. (laughs) Okay. Name is the Juggernaut. Well, you're a real stickler today, aren't you? (laughs) Well, yeah, it's it's good. I think this is a fight that uh, really appeals to hardcore fans. At the top of the show, I said it might actually turn out to be the main event because I think we have this idea in our heads that that Ellenberger and McDonald legitimately don't like each other, and I think that they're going to go out and try to bash each other's faces in. Whereas the 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 flyweight title fight is um, with one guy who we've never really heard of before, and then a champion that hasn't been that that dominating in his first couple of of title fights. Um, so I think that that, that Ellenberger versus McDonald is one that that a lot of people are really looking forward to. Me among them, I think it has at least the potential to be a really good fight. It's it's the kind of fight that comes at the time in the career of both guys that I think makes it really interesting. I feel like it's it's kind of a it's kind of make or break time really for Jake Ellenberger. He's I believe 28 years old and uh 
He's been in the UFC for a couple years and has had a pretty good career. I believe he's eight and two, uh, and with losses to Carlos Condit and, and then to Martin Campman. But at the, at the same time, he's always been one of these good guys in the division that you look at him and you think that at least aspects of his game seem to match up pretty well with, uh, George St. Pierre. If he ever got that fight into, you know, ever got that far into a, a potential, uh, matchup for, for the title. And he, so he seems like an, he could be an interesting guy in the division, but he also has these, uh, you know, Achilles heels, I guess you would say, in that he seems to get tired really fast and has had a couple of slip ups, I guess, most notably the one against Martin Campman. Um, so he seems like a guy who could have a bright future, but if he's going to do it, he needs to do it right now. And uh, to, to do that, I think he needs to, to beat Rory McDonald who's sort of the young upstart. You know, I feel like Rory McDonald has the hype advantage here. And I keep trying to figure out, is it because of his, his youth we were, we were excited by how good he seems so early. Uh, is it because, you know, he's George St. Pierre's buddy? And so it seems like George St. Pierre, like basically training his own replacement kind of deal. Um, is it just that, you know, he seems like he might actually be a sociopath and that's exciting for us in the fight community? I don't know because I feel like if you look at their records, it seems like Jake Ellenberger is the more accomplished fighter. I mean, Roy McDonald, you go back through some of his wins and of course you can do this with any fighter, you know, if you really want to try and be a dick to them or something. And I'm not trying to do that here, but you know, he beat BJ Penn at the end of his career with BJ fighting at a, a weight class he had no business fighting and really uh, beat Shea Mills, who we, we were told somehow was supposed to be awesome and then turned out not to be. Uh, you know, Mike Pyle, that's a good win in light of what Mike Pyle has done since then, kind of went under, underwent a rejuvenation. Fought. And then Nate Diaz, who again was fighting in a weight class where he shouldn't have been. I, I don't, I think Jake Ellenberger has the better wins there, but somehow just people get into Roy McDonald a little more. Yeah, I don't think there's any question that Jake Ellenberger, at least to this point, has the more accomplished UFC career. Uh, but at the same time, McDonald's one of these dudes kind of in the vein of a Cain Velasquez or a Chris Weidman who, at least the people in his own camp were, were telling us how awesome he was going to be before he even showed up, you know? Uh, and when you've got George St. Pierre saying that kind of stuff about you, it, it carries a little bit of weight, uh, in, in public opinion. And certainly he's been impressive at, at, at times in the octagon. But like I said, I think this is a good litmus test fight for both guys just because neither one of them has, has defeated what you might refer to as top tier talent or top tier competition in their most recent fights. Uh, and so you're right that, that McDonald comes in with an awful lot of hype, but also comes in, you got to think at least a little bit unproven. And I think that if he can go out and, and do what he says he's going to do against Jake Ellenberger, which I believe is embarrass him technically is what he said. <laughs> uh, uh, then that would be a kind of a meaningful thing in the career of Rory McDonald. And at the same time, if he loses, then, you know, maybe we start seeing him through somewhat different eyes maybe more Shea Millsy type eyes, Ooh. which would be a, a, an awful far fall. It would be. What if he just goes in there and, and, and pantses Jake Ellenberger? Because that would be embarrassing, right? You get pantsed on, well, would on that Fox be, live would, on Fox. Would that Not be, even like on Fuel. <laughs> would that be embarrassing him technically, though? Because that's what Rory McDonald said. It's going to embarrass him technically. Yeah. Well, I mean, I would feel technically embarrassed. I think to embarrass someone technically, you at least have to have someone else kneel down behind them and then push them over. Okay. Yeah. Well, see, here's where you could have a, a tricky manager at your side. This is where you need Ray Longo and Matt Sarah. <laughs> yeah. No, good point. I think you you maybe have hit on a, what Brian Dermody was talking about in his email last, last week on the show. Once again, Brian Dermody ahead of his time. Again, though, this... 
this fight got essentially the same treatment on this UFC hype show that uh, Moraga versus Demetrius Johnson did, where the preview for this fight was all about how hard Jake Ellenberger is working to prepare for this fight against Rory McDonald. And the preview about Rory McDonald was all about him like broing down with Mark Echo and, and <laughs> having his, his mom and his brother come so they can hang out with his girlfriend. And, and like I said, you, it's not like you put a hundred percent or very much stock at all in, in a, in an edited hour long hype show. They're not really showing you what these guys are doing to prepare. And maybe it's a case where, uh, Ellenberger's personal story, which was mostly about him, you know, his training and, and the sickness that his brother has, uh, maybe that dovetailed better with, with footage from the gym than what Rory McDonald's personal story was able to show us. But at the same time, it looked like this is a situation where one guy is going balls to the wall to try to win the fight. And the other dude is hanging, with hanging Mark out Echo. with Mark Echo planning, uh, planning for note, his fashion career. I've been to that uh, loft, that Mark Echo's loft in, in Manhattan. Of, of course you have. Uh, when Fedor announced uh, his M1 Global thing, they did a little press conference there. Uh, and I think I was working for the IFL at the time. For some reason, I was invited, and I didn't even know why. And I went, uh, and the whole thing was just really fucking weird. Because for one thing, we're in this Mark Echo loft where there's just a bunch of like racks of clothes sitting around. Um, and then also they announced, you know, the creation of M1 Global. But then we started asking these follow ups about what the hell that actually meant. And no one really seemed to know. Uh, but they did give us all M1 Global t shirts. And then we oh, went home. Cool. Yeah. Where's your M1 Global t shirt today? I don't believe I've seen you wearing it. Oh, I always wear it underneath whatever shirt I'm wearing at the time. Okay. Just I want it close to me. Because you're a never nude. <laughs> yeah. It's basically like how the Mormons wear the special underwear. I wear that M1 Global shirt. The weird thing about a lot of the stuff in the Rory McDonald portion of Road to the Octagon was that a good portion of it seemed, if not made up, then maybe exaggerated. Because they tried to make a big deal about Rory McDonald, like segueing into the world of business and becoming a businessman and like getting involved in all of these ventures. And they show him go to like Mark Echo's house. And like, if you are an MMA fan, you know that Mark Echo is just a dude who's around the sport and will sponsor you if you're a good fighter. And that kind of made me think like, well, this doesn't seem like Rory McDonald's really like spearheading he's not making moves in the streets here he's, yeah. he's just hanging out with mark echo they might have been overselling that gave angle. ben folks a shirt once you know what yeah. i mean well not personally but i think it was an intern uh but yeah because i noticed that too in that road to the octagon thing at one point they talk about how excited madison avenue is about roy mcdonald I'm like yeah that's just probably not true at this point you know maybe maybe in the future you can start making those claims, but yeah, it seems like, especially when they're writing maybe some of the voiceover scripts for these things, they're assuming that you're not really listening anyway. Yeah. Or you just don't know any better. <laughs> it seems like the, the, the other thing they're banking on. Anyway, I'm real excited for the fight. I think that, uh, as Ray Longo might say, they're going to go out there and try to punch, punch a hole in each other's fucking chests. So I think that that's going to be, yeah, breathing. That's going to be a good time. Anyway, before we get started in uh, round number three, let's do, uh, are you fucking kidding me? The, portion of the show that uh is pretty goddamn self-explanatory ben what's your are you fucking kidding me for this week well chad as you mentioned at the top of the show my wife and baby are out of town which means i have been taking most of my meals outside of the home okay. uh, and right. as i was finishing up breakfast at the press box sports bar uh, the other morning, I happened to walk by a poster on the wall. They have a bunch of UFC posters and pay-per-view events and stuff like that on the wall at the press box. 
Um, and then they also had a poster for something that advertised itself as bare knuckle boxing, but in the photo on the poster clearly showed two dudes wearing boxing gloves. Um, and then I saw, and this is embarrassing, but at a sec, a separate breakfast at the press box. Oh, Jesus Christ. When does your <laughs> wife get back? Is she back yet? I saw a commercial on TV for this bare knuckle boxing thing. They call it bare knuckle boxing, and it's just dudes in slightly smaller boxing gloves, near as I can tell. Are you fucking kidding me? It's just the name of the thing isn't even accurate about what the thing is. And it's like, what is anybody out there going like, oh man, I love watching boxing when they hit each other with these gloves. I just wish the gloves were a little bit smaller. Because if you do feel that way, I have a suggestion for you, and it's called mixed martial arts. You fucking kidding me, bare knuckle boxing? Are you fucking kidding me? So your your qualm with bare knuckle boxing is that it does it's not going to come as advertised. Well, that's one of my qualms. See, because my qualm would be that the with it that the reason boxing as we know it today exists is because bare knuckle boxing didn't work. <laughs> like that's yes. why they came up with boxing. That's why we have boxing. So <laughs> yes, it just seems weird it. that somebody would be like, you know, it would be great. You know, it would be killer bare knuckle boxing. They tried it. They tried it 100 years ago. It didn't work. They're not even trying it now because they have gloves on. (laughs) Fucking gloves. We all see them. Anyway, this week, my Are You Fucking Kidding Me goes out to former light heavyweight champion and current uh, UFC director of public works or senior (laughs) vice president in charge of mobile marketing infrastructure social analysis. Yeah. Anyway, I don't know what Chuck Liddell does for the UFC, but I do Neither know Chuck that he went on Inside MMA on Access TV this past week, and in pinpointing the biggest problem in mixed martial arts today, he didn't say it was concussions. Oh, no? He didn't say that it was, I don't know, rampant PED use. He didn't even say that it's the sheer overabundance of product. Uh, was it even dudes getting drunk and taking the shirts off in nightclubs? Here's what Chuck Liddell said. The fighters probably aren't going to like me for this one, but my biggest problem is guys playing it safe. I understand that from a coach's standpoint and a manager's standpoint, I understand why you want to play it safe and win every fight. I get it. But do I want to go out and watch a guy beat another guy for four rounds, then in the fifth round not do anything? You want to be worth more? Go out and fight. Have fun. Knock people out. Submit them. Beat them. I don't care. Just try and finish and try to finish a fight. So there you have it, folks. The problem according to Chuck Liddell in the sport of mixed martial arts is that dudes just aren't dishing out and or accepting enough punishment. I see what you're doing there. Are you fucking kidding me? Fucking kidding me. Anyway, that's going to do it for round number two. We'll be right back with round number three. Well, Ben, Dana White went full Dana White on SportsIllustrated.com this past week after their show, which I believe is called SI.com Now? SI Now. Now? Something SI like now. that? Uh, they, they had a stupid-ass roundtable where a bunch of people who had not probably watched the Chris Weidman-Anderson Silva fight discussed whether or not it was fixed. Dana White, as I am sure everyone can understand, became enraged by this, uh, almost as enraged as if someone told him they didn't like Joe Dirt. And so he appeared on uh, SI Now uh, this past week and uh, uh, did a lot of shouting, yeah. did his thing that he does. He when, appeared on SI Now then. 
Van, yeah. He, okay. And so he, he, he shouted at them about it, um, which I guess is, is what we have come to expect at this point from his, uh, public persona. Um, at this point, I mean, in this, in this in- instance, though, he's right, right? He is right to get mad at them for maybe irresponsibly talking about something that they did not seem to really know what it was. Uh, and I mean, I think they had, Chris Mannix on there, who was their boxing guy, but they didn't have, I mean, they have MMA reporters that they could have added. You know, they have Loretta Hunt, they have Jeff Wagonheim. I think they record that thing in New York and Jeff is in like, uh, Connecticut or maybe Massachusetts. Actually, he'll probably get mad if I say Connecticut. I think he's in Massachusetts. So you could bring that guy up if you want to actually have a serious conversation about the UFC. Bring in your dude who knows the UFC. But no, they didn't do that. And instead, just kind of all shot from the hip about it. Um, and Dana White flew into a rage. You know what the thing that seems weird to me, though, about this is that when people talk about the prospect of a fix in the UFC, they seem to jump immediately to the assumption that like it would be the UFC fixing it. Right. We talked about that a little bit last week, didn't we? That that would be like the stupidest possible thing the UFC would yeah. do. But I mean, and, but that's not the only danger of a fix. And I would say it's like the least likely danger is that the UFC right. would fix its own fights because right. the UFC has so much more money to gain just by like avoiding that perception at all costs and just keep the machine chugging right along. Like there's no one fight that would be worth it to fix just because of the risk that that would do to to the brand in the long run. But for individual fighters, especially like ones who are lower down on the pay scale, then it might actually be worth it. Uh, or, or they might actually be talked into or making a, a bad choice and fixing a fight. Like that's what I would think would be more dangerous that individual fighters, all you need to do to fix a fight is to get one guy. It's not like, you know, trying to fix like the 1920 world series or whatever the hell it was. It, like that's pretty simple. So I, but it seems like we never even consider that possibility. Everybody jumps straight to like whether it's the UFC pulling the strings or something. Right. And that's weird because as you mentioned, like the UFC doesn't need to do that. Their product is good enough as it is just putting it on as a legitimate athletic competition. Like the last thing those guys want to do is control the outcomes of stuff because, uh, you know, when Dana White goes on the internet and rips into the Nevada State Athletic Commission for continually assigning Steve Mazzagatti to important fights or whatever, like who, how much glee do you think it would bring someone in the Nevada, Nevada State Athletic Commission to suddenly uh, discover that the UFC had been doing something nefarious in terms of its of not its, nefarious in, in terms of its of its outcomes and its competition? They would love that. And we talk about stuff that could potentially kill the sport, like concussions and PEDs. Well, fuck, man! If it turns out the UFC were fixing fights, your sport would be dead the next day. Yeah. And so I, I think it's 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 ridiculous to think that they would ever do that, that they would ever engage in any sort of like worked scenario. And you're 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 right to to say that the much more likely scenario is where uh, uh, Arnold Rothstein type individual, professional gambler. Arnold Rothstein uh, would would approach a fighter. Um, probably, I think what you would want to do, you, well, you wouldn't want to fix Chris Weidman versus Anderson Silva, for starters. You would want to find whatever the lowest fight on the card that you could get odds on is and find who's the guy or or girl who's not making very much money which is pretty easy to do in mixed martial arts. Yeah. Or you could do it with this weekend, for instance, where you got uh, 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 Liz Carmouche and uh, Jessica Andrade. Is that how you pronounce her sure, name? Sure, man. Okay. You nailed it. Um, but like where Liz Carmouche is a heavy favorite. Uh, and, you know, how much is Jessica Andrade really making to, to do that fight? What, like six and six maybe? Like you couldn't, you couldn't, you, 
maybe go to her and be like, hey, I'll give you 70 grand. Uh, 70? I'll give you 12. How about that? It's twice what you're making. Yeah. Well, you know, that that kind of thing seems like it is would be uh, much greater risk. But one of the things I wondered, watching Dana White go off yeah. on SI Now yeah. then uh, was how I found myself feeling like, A, you're right. You're right to be mad about this. Mm-hmm. You're right to criticize them for talking about this without knowing it. And especially mm-hmm. with SI, because I've worked for SI and I know that they don't just don't give that much of a shit about MMA and will only sometimes occasionally pretend to give a shit about it, which is more annoying than if you just didn't give a shit at all. Um, but the way he, when you just start screaming at them on their show, um, I feel like maybe it gets lost to the right. other people watching it that you're right. They just remember, oh, this crazy dude came on the SI show and started yelling at the people. I mean, yeah, maybe that would have been a situation where you can kind of temper your criticism so that like we can appreciate what you're saying rather than just how you're saying it. Yeah, in this instance, though, I think this is one of the things that really endears Dana White to the casual or average MMA fan to, to have him stick up for the sport and go on this show and scream at these people. There was probably a lot of dudes hanging around high-fiving each other uh, in the back room of their Magic the Gathering tournaments or whatever, uh, talking about how awesome it was. To me, the most hilarious part was where the very the interview began with Dana White accusing the woman from SI.com now uh, of not having watched the fight and her accusing Dana White of not having watched their show. And it where seems they like talked, they're both right. Yeah, <laughs> neither of them would answer the question. They both just continued to sort of yell at each other in, in, uh, in on her part in muted tones and in Dana White's part with, with the volume turned up to 11. By the way, would this not be just totally fucking incredible if they first on SI now then talked about the fight without having seen it, and then when they were going to talk to Dana White about the backlash for them saying that stuff, by then still hadn't watched it? You still didn't go back and watch it when you were going to talk to the president and you had gotten in trouble for maybe talking about something where you didn't know? We wouldn't watch it then even? Yeah, well, suffice to say, they didn't watch it and he didn't watch their show either because neither of them would answer the question. Uh, the other probably weirdest video of the week came out of Brazil where uh, I don't speak Portuguese, so I can't. I can only tell you what I've been led to believe, but that's that Anderson Silva uh, 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 teared up a little bit when when confronted with the with the uh, the allegations that his fight against Chris Weidman uh, was fixed, uh, and he seemed to get emotional when that makes him sad when that that topic was brought up. Uh, how come when dudes cry, such a big deal in this sport? It seems like every time someone cries, we get we get this enormous. Uh, uh, bubble of, of publicity about it. You know, I remember when, when Lieben cried on the first season of the ultimate fighter for like two years, people were like, that guy's a pussy. Look at him crying on the ultimate fighter. Wait, when, did people really say that? Yeah. No, they didn't. Yes, they did. I was touched. And <laughs> I, I mean, I guess the overall point being, dude, I'll let you in on a secret. Everybody in this fucking sport cries. <laughs> Every single dude, when he loses a fight, even if he's holding it together out there in the cage during his interview, he goes back to the hotel that night. He cries. He sits in a chair by himself and he cries. And this sounds like it's going to be a great Chad Dunn's lifestyle piece <laughs> entitled "Everybody in This Sport Fucking Cries." Everybody hurts. <laughs> you know, I actually I was really uh, watching that video of Anderson. It made me feel like this is the most like 
genuine seeming emotion we've ever seen from Anderson Silva. The other times, you know, when he, it's hard to tell if he's just fucking with us or not, like how much he really cares about uh, perception or about what anybody thinks of him. It's really tough to get any kind of answer. It feels genuine. But then when, you know, he's crying at the suggestion that he might have thrown a fight, like that I think makes him like more relatable and more, it endears him more to fans than any of the, dominating performances over like the last seven years. Yeah. And uh, obviously there's a, there's a language barrier thing there. So he just probably can't really open up uh, as a human as much to, to the uh, crimes universal. I mean, that's right. So it's like the Dana White always says about fighting. It's in our DNA, man. That's right. We love it. Uh, but you know, when he's doing stuff with the American media, since, since he's not incredibly proficient at English, he, he probably doesn't really feel comfortable opening up in that way uh, to, to people who don't speak Portuguese, which, you know, it made it all the more striking to see him on this talk show, like engaging in what appeared to be a full interview, because we don't really see uh, that much stuff like that from him here in America, uh, albeit a talk show where a dude was appeared to be maybe painted up like the Incredible Hulk standing in the background. They do things differently in Brazil. They do. Anyway, well, let's do uh, just saying stuff and then we will get out of here for this week. Ben, uh, what's your just saying stuff this week? My just saying stuff, as regular readers of MMA Junkie and USA Today no doubt know, uh, the fighter who was featured on ESPN uh, with Down Syndrome, Garrett Holiv, I think that's how you say it, I don't know, um, is they're talking about a fight between him and uh, a guy named David Stefan who suffers from mild cerebral palsy and is a, is a big guy in the martial arts aspect of the Special Olympics. Uh, now... An MMA fight between two disabled fighters uh, has understandably drawn a lot of attention, not all of it positive, uh, especially within the MMA community, which can be kind of overprotective at times. And I admit that when I first heard about it, my first thought was, no, no, don't do this. This seems like a bad idea. But then when I read Stephen Morocco's story on it, and he talks to Garrett Holev's father, uh, who points out like, hey, if these dudes wanted to do judo, they could do that in the Special Olympics and nobody would have a problem with it. They could wrestle in the Special Olympics, all that stuff. So what are we saying about MMA if we're like, okay, you can do that other martial arts stuff, but no, in order to do our sport, you must be good at it. Uh, I mean, I think it's one of those things, I'm just saying, where if people want to do it, and if there is no really, really good unimpeachable reason that they can't do it, then you got to let them do it. You don't have to watch it. You don't have to like it. But you do have to let them do it. Because, damn it, man, that's kind of the whole the point of the whole damn thing, right? I'm just saying. Just saying. Uh, well, Ben, this week I'm just saying probably a story that is, is yet another one that we could file under. Uh, this is why we can't have nice things. Uh, <laughs> Joe Riggs. Oh, boy. Dude. You wonder why uh, nobody respects us or, or why the mainstream sports culture treats MMA like it's white trash cousin that shows up to grandma's funeral in a Megadeth shirt. Awesome. And then throws rocks at birds the whole time that the preacher is given the eulogy. It's because dudes like Joe Riggs go on internet radio shows and tell stories about other fighters' dicks. Oh, boy. And, I, you know, I'm not trying to say that 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 Joe Riggs shouldn't do that. I'm not trying You're to not? take away his right to say it. Uh, and I'm not trying to say that other sites shouldn't use it as what I believe Ben Folks likes to refer to as link bait. Oh, that's link bait. I'm just saying stuff like this is why nobody respects us. I'm just saying. Just saying. 
Well, that is going to do it for the co-main event podcast this week. Tune in again next week. We'll be back to tell you what happened at UFC on Fox 8, because I'm sure you're not going to watch it. Uh, no, you'll totally watch it. But it, until then, for right now, we're done. We're through. We're out. Jed, I, I want you to know this, and I'm going to say this on the podcast before everybody, and I, and I expect you to hold me to this. If I'm ever on an internet radio show and they ask me about your dick, I'm going to respectfully decline.